Hello, welcome to episode 11 of Life and Life Only. So if you've been listening to the recent episodes, I hope you enjoyed them. The last two, a two-parter on Temerlington Place was certainly a bit of a departure. We did originally record that for YouTube, but I wanted to give it a podcast home and we were looking at the truth of it. So another entry in the canon. So today's episode which uh, I don't know how long it's going to take me to read through what I'd like to read through. It could be a while, so we might be talking two episodes, possibly even three, but uh, we'll see how that goes. But for now, we're starting with episode 11, Emotional Intelligence. So this is a big one. I'm going to be reading excerpts from the Daniel Goleman book of the same name from 1995. This was a real game changer. I read it a while ago, but it was interesting. Sometimes when you read a book... And someone says to you years later, well, what was in that book? You can't actually bring any of it to mind. And that's what happened with me. And that's what actually motivated me, as well as the opportunity to talk about it on this podcast, to read the book again. Because I remembered it as an important book, but I couldn't recall any of it. Even though I believe that when we do read books, the knowledge still goes in there, even if you can't recall it on demand. But yes, I read it again about a month ago. So it's fairly fresh in my mind been very hard to choose which sections i sat down last night and i skimmed through the book i was thinking i could probably read this whole book quite easily to you but uh, i want you to read it i don't want you to use this as simply a shortcut i've chosen some sections which i think are compelling i'm going to try to keep my own commentary to a minimum although inevitably i will have things to say rather like with the meditation book but yeah i'm going to try and let the book speak for itself he said without too much confidence that that's going to happen (laughs) i'll do my best the thing about this book is that if you do choose to read it or if you've already read it the stuff in it is not really that complicated the stuff about the brain was quite detailed and quite technical and there are some appendices at the back of the book about that and other things that's the kind of knowledge that i personally find more difficult to absorb but all the the psychology stuff and a a lot of it is social situations and it's not particularly complicated but to have it all in one book collated together and it's so important daniel goldman has since written a book called social intelligence which i haven't read but i really feel that you could put social intelligence under the banner of emotional intelligence and there are some a lot of things in fact in this book which like i say are social situations there's lots of practical advice in this book. It's, a, it's not just telling you what the problem is. It's offering solutions. And it's backed up by multiple uh, studies, which he cites in the book. So he's not just speculating. Inevitably, this book has been criticised, but I think there's a big political element to book and film criticism. Just a hearty recommendation for me, and I'll probably recommend it at the end of this rather epic (laughs) reading of sections of it. So, emotional intelligence is otherwise known as EQ. Of course, you could call it EI, but clearly EQ is used to differentiate it from IQ, which is intelligence quotient. There are proponents of um, the idea that IQ is more important, or the only thing, in fact. There was one... um, podcaster who was arguing that there was no evidence for eq whatsoever which i couldn't get on board with because if you do read this book and if you're listening to this you will surely find that a lot of the things cited in this book are very familiar you may have experienced them yourself or 
witnessed these kind of things happening and seeing the phenomena that are shown in this book. So anyway, IQ, I think, is quite important. I've never read The Bell Curve, which is the famous book about it, but I think it's quite possible for someone with a very high IQ to not be successful in life because they don't know how to manage people, they don't know how to manage situations, they can't control their responses. And in a sense, perhaps I'm evidence of that myself. In 1999, I was working in a company and there was a gentleman who was leaving after, I think, 35 years with the company. He was a member of Mensa and he put out an announcement to everyone in the company and said, I'm going to organise a free Mensa test for the first person to answer this puzzle I'm going to pose to you. So he said, uh, exactly 2pm or whenever it was, I'm going to send this puzzle. First person to reply... And it was something that I was very good at. It was either words or numbers, I can't remember, but those were my strong areas at that time. So I replied first and um, got a free Mensa test and got into Mensa. But the interesting thing about that, Mensa is the high IQ society. And I'm not telling you that to boast. In fact, I'm going to almost argue the opposite in that when you do a Mensa test, you have to get in the top either 1% or 2% on one of the two Mensa tests. So one of them I remember was, like I say, words and numbers. And it was about, you had to answer questions within 15 seconds or something in order to answer them all within the allotted time. You know, and this was absolutely my domain, you know, I was lapping all this up. But the second half of it, from memory, was something to do with shapes. It was one of those things where they said, they give you a shape, quite a complicated 3D shape, and they say, if I turn this 90 degrees, what will it look like? Something like that. And I was absolutely useless. I was probably in the bottom 10% for that part. But because I'd got in the top, whatever it was, the very high bracket on one of the two tests, I got into Mensa. But it did kind of show somewhat the limitations. Another example, this is a not quite directly connected, but I did a music show once. I used to belong to the School of Economic Science in London, which is basically, it was actually it was philosophy school, really. And we gave a concert, and these two fellows did this amazing piano recital, and it was actually a comedy. It was one of those things where they, they would swap places. They're both sitting at the piano, and they'd swap places and manage to keep this piano thing going. And they were displaying incredible skill. And uh, in the break, I just started busking a little bit of piano, and I, I have this kind of ragged, slightly improvised style. I learned a blues scale. I can play chords. I can make a pleasant noise, let's call it, on the piano. And one of the guys came up to me and said, oh, that was good, yeah, I like that. And I said, well, yeah, but compared to what you can do. And he said, yeah, but were you improvising? And I said, yeah. And he said, yeah, you know, nothing on that recital that we did was improvised at all. We just memorised the whole thing. And he said, you know, if you gave me a piano and said, make something up, I wouldn't be able to. So it's the idea that I think you could learn to have a high IQ. Some people would say it's fixed, but one of the things in this book, which I like, which we'll get to later, is the idea that things aren't fixed and that you can change yourself, reinvent yourself, learn skills. And again, you know, I was utterly unexceptional at school. I had a few particular skills, but I've been on myself an odyssey of more than a decade of self-education, which, again, you know, is not always great for your social life, let's say, you know. You know, because I, basically I've, my life has really done a complete 180. I don't want to get too personal about it because the episode's about this book rather than me. But 
I used to have a very, very, very active social life and not a very active intellectual life, let's call it. So I suppose that's been uh, somewhat flipped in the last few years. So there's the strengths and weaknesses of that. Anyway, just to say that things are not what they seem. You know, someone can have an amazing aptitude at something, but perhaps not an ability to improvise. And if you put that into a social situation, you know, I've known people who are clearly very, I'm going to say intelligent in the the popular sense of the word. Later on, I'm going to talk about multiple intelligences, which really turns that on its head. But, you know, maybe they don't know how to improvise in a social situation, you know, in a pressure situation, for example. Anyway, I really want to get onto the book, so I'm going to stop rambling. Just very quickly, a couple of definitions. So EQ, the capability of individuals to recognise their own emotions and those of others, discern between different feelings and label them appropriately, use emotional information to guide thinking and behaviour and adjust emotions to adapt to environments. Obviously, you know, this is a big topic, it's difficult to summarise it, but that's a pretty good summary. And then on the back of the book itself, Things are mentioned such as self-awareness, impulse control, persistence, zeal and motivation, empathy and social deafness. It says these are the qualities that make people who excel, whose relationships flourish and who are stars in the workplace. So let's get on to the book. So I've organised this so I'm going to read a little bit from each chapter. And we're going to start in fact with the introduction. So before chapter one, this is called Aristotle's Challenge. And there's a quick quote from Aristotle. Anyone can become angry, that is easy. But to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, and in the right way, that is not easy. So the idea of taking something like anger and thinking of it as being used appropriately in the right context. If you remember, one of the early episodes was about optimism and how sometimes being a cynic or a sceptic is good and being optimistic is bad. So... If you substitute anger for optimism, if you're stranded on a desert island and your recourse is to tell everybody, don't worry, a plane or a boat is going to appear and we're going to get saved, that might mean you're not going to do anything about the situation. So the person who says, there's no way, you know, the cynic who says, there's no way a boat or a plane is going to come to this island, you know, think of Tom Hanks in Castaway, he's more likely to do something about the situation. So uh, there's a good quote there. So I'm just going to read a little story. This is uh, very heartwarming. I would say some of the stuff I'm going to read today is a little bit negative or challenging, but I tried to pick out parts that gave advice as well. So anyway, this is a story um, at the very beginning of the book. It was an unbearably steamy August afternoon in New York City, the kind of sweaty day that makes people sullen with discomfort. I was heading back to a hotel, and as I stepped onto a bus up Madison Avenue... I was startled by the driver, a middle-aged black man with an enthusiastic smile, who welcomed me with a friendly, Hi, how you doing? as I got on, a greeting he proffered to everyone else who entered as the bus wormed through the thick midtown traffic. Each passenger was as startled as I, and locked into the morose mood of the day, few returned his greeting. But as the bus crawled uptown through the gridlock, a slow, rather magical transformation occurred. The driver gave a running monologue for our benefit, a lively commentary on the passing scene around us. There was a terrific sale at that store, a wonderful exhibit at this museum. Did you hear about the new movie that just opened at that cinema down the block? 
His delight in the rich possibilities the city offered was infectious. By the time people got off the bus, each in turn had shaken off the sullen shell they had entered with, and when the driver shouted out a, So long, have a great day, each gave a smiling response. The memory of that encounter has stayed with me for close to 20 years. When I rode that Madison Avenue bus, I had just finished my own doctorate in psychology, where there was scant attention paid in the psychology of the day to just how such a transformation could happen. Psychological science knew little or nothing of the mechanics of emotion, and yet, imagining the spreading virus of good feeling that must have rippled through the city, starting from passengers on his bus, I saw that this bus driver was an urban peacemaker of sorts, wizard-like in his power to transmute the sullen irritability that seethed in his passengers, to soften and open their hearts a bit. And then he goes on in stark contrast from items from this week's paper, and he talks about a, a, a child going on a rampage in school, a row between some teenagers to do with minor slights and acts of disrespect, a murder victim under 12, and then a German youth on trial for murdering women and girls in a fire he set while they slept, and he was part of a neo-Nazi group. Each day's news comes to us rife with such reports of the disintegration of civility and safety, an onslaught of mean-spirited impulse running amok. But the news simply reflects back to us on a larger scale a creeping sense of emotions out of control in our own lives and in those of the people around us. No one is insulated from this erratic tide of outburst and regret. It reaches into all of our lives in one way or another. And then he says later, This book is a guide to making sense of the senselessness. As a psychologist, and for the last decade as a journalist for the New York Times, I've been tracking the progress of our scientific understanding of the realm of the irrational. From that perch, I've been struck by two opposing trends, one portraying a growing calamity in our shared emotional life, the other offering some hopeful remedies. So that story of the bus driver interested me a lot because it's the idea that you can spread happiness and without realising it, you could infect, (laughs) in a good way, thousands and thousands of people very, very quickly. It's the idea that if you told three people something and then each one of them told three people and then you multiply that, very, very quickly the whole world would know. It's quite amazing. I did the calculation. I can't remember off the top of my head, unfortunately, how long it would take. Tell three people, they tell three people. All of them tell three people. And something spreads very, 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 very quickly. So thinking about um, interactions. Now, public transport is an interesting one because I would say, and also shops as well, Let's take shops, for example. I would say that 90% of interactions in shops, certainly in England, and I would say in other countries I've lived as well, are just generally reasonably pleasant. You know, the shop assistant doesn't want to lose their job. They might like serving customers. I remember I was a manager of a shop once in London. I I like dealing with the general public. 90% of interactions will be, um, hello, how are you? You know, do your transaction might say have a good day or you might say thank you very much and you know it's reasonably pleasant you might have one particular person it was a lady who worked in a bakery in madrid where i used to live who just lifted my heart every time i went into that shop and i'm sure she did that with other customers because she just had that extra you know was it fake was it real i don't know it seemed pretty real to me she would just have a big smile and she's just very good at that conversely in shops and in public transport you'll often find people working there who are just useless with their people skills maybe they're jaded perhaps maybe you know you see too many members of the public 
can drive you mad. And then you'd have uh, an unpleasant interaction. And what I was kind of thinking about was that those unpleasant interactions really do impact your day. So something as silly as buying something from a shop or traveling on a bus or a train, we think that, you know, we don't need someone's fake enthusiasm to say, oh, good morning, sir, and all that. But then perhaps we've been conditioned with that because when you do have a sort of casual interaction, when you see someone who's who's working with the general public who doesn't really make any effort to be nice, maybe they're neutral, maybe they're a bit moody, it does make a difference. So um, think about that, you know, the idea that uh, you can spread happiness. The same way that, you know, people who work in hospitality, like hotels, for example, they're terrified of customers, guests, saying that their hotel is terrible to their friends because then they will pass it on to other people. And um, obviously nowadays you've got TripAdvisor and all these kind of websites. So the pressure is on to get good reviews. Could go on a tangent about the amazing Black Mirror episode called Nose Dive, which I use in my English classes. The idea of the, you know, the old social ratings, which we're now seeing in China. Anyway, that is for another day. And I'm 20 minutes in and I've barely started this book, so I'm already in trouble. Anyway... Part one of the book is called The Emotional Brain. Chapter one, what are emotions for? So there's a section called Our Two Minds. A friend was telling me about her divorce, a painful separation. Her husband had fallen in love with a younger woman at work and suddenly announced he was leaving to live with the other woman. Months of bitter wrangling over house, money and custody of the children followed. Now some months later she was saying that her independence was appealing to her, that she was happy to be on her own. I just don't think about him anymore. I really don't care, she said. As she said it, her eyes momentarily welled up with tears. That moment of teary eyes could easily pass unnoted. But the empathic understanding that someone's watering eyes means she is sad, despite her words to the contrary, is an act of comprehending, just as surely as is distilling meaning from words on a printed page. One is an act of the emotional mind, the other of the rational mind. In a very real sense, we have two minds, one that thinks and one that feels. These two fundamentally different ways of knowing interact to construct our mental life. One, the rational mind, is the mode of comprehension we are typically conscious of, more prominent in awareness, thoughtful, able to ponder and reflect. But alongside that, there is another system of knowing, impulsive and powerful, if sometimes illogical, the emotional mind. The emotional-rational dichotomy approximates the folk distinction between heart and head, Knowing something is right in your heart is a different order of conviction, somehow a deeper kind of certainty than thinking so with your rational mind. There is a steady gradient in the ratio of rational to emotional control over the mind. The more intense the feeling, the more dominant the emotional mind becomes, and the more ineffectual the rational. And obviously there's a lot more about this, but a couple of things spring to mind, yeah. I would say one of the things about EQ that you could learn, perhaps, is to understand body language. So you can learn certain skills. Of course, the one that most people are interested in is to know, uh, for a man to know when a woman is attracted to you. But there's many, many other ones. And it's interesting to find with, for example, passive aggression, which I think is a relatively new idea, although it's already existed. It's the idea that someone could be smiling at you, but all their body language is telling you that they don't like you or they, you're a threat to them. I used to get this a lot in offices. And I learned to read it. So you can learn some basic skills of body language, but then you develop your emotional intelligence beyond that by using your own instincts. 
And then really the idea that uh, most societies now favour the rational, although that's changing. Uh, I was going to point out that this book, uh, as I said earlier, was written in 1995, but I think it's just these things are so fundamental that, uh, and I don't think they've necessarily improved. It's probably a case where we've gone, you know, two steps forward and one step or even two steps back. So we've probably developed in some of these areas, but then society has got worse. We're going to talk later about um, how modernity, which seems a step forward, is perhaps a step back in other ways. Anyway, I think, you know, pay attention to your emotional life and the emotional life of others, you know, and perhaps see through the rational. You know, the rational I see as the mask we wear, you know, our ability to be a good adult you know there's a child still in all of us and you will see adults including myself giving childish reactions to things so uh interesting that as you said these two minds operate in tight harmony for the most part intertwining their very different ways of knowing to guide us through the world ordinarily there's a balance between emotional and rational minds with emotion feeding into and informing the operations of the rational mind the other thing you wrote about there was gut feelings i know in my own mind Often I get a gut feeling, but it doesn't last very long. And it seems that my rational mind then takes over very quickly, almost not trusting. So you can almost see it, emotional and rational operating in tight harmony, but uh, also competing with each other. And me being a musician, you know, tight harmony makes me think of, uh, you know, being in bands and harmonizing with my bandmates and seeming in harmony with them. But there's a lot of competitiveness, passive aggression, going on at the same time so yeah interesting stuff moving on to chapter two the chapter is entitled anatomy of an emotional hijacking i'm just giving you the chapter titles really to give you a a flavor of the book and this section is called the seat of all passion in humans the amygdala from the greek word for almond is an almond shaped cluster of interconnected structures perched above the brain stem near the bottom of the limbic ring there are two amygdalas one on each side of the brain, nestled towards the side of the head. The human amygdala is relatively large compared to that in any of our closest evolutionary cousins, the primates. The hippocampus and the amygdala were the two key parts of the primitive nose brain that in evolution gave rise to the cortex and then the neocortex. To this day, these limbic structures do much or most of the brain's learning and remembering. The amygdala is the specialist for emotional matters. If the amygdala is severed from the rest of the brain, The result is a striking inability to gauge the emotional significance of events. This condition is sometimes called affective blindness. More than affection is tied to the amygdala. All passion depends on it. Animals that have their amygdala removed or severed lack fear and rage, lose the urge to compete or cooperate, and no longer have any sense of their place in their kind's social order. Emotion is blunted or absent. Tears, an emotional signal unique to humans, are triggered by the amygdala and a nearby structure, the cingulate gyrus. Being held, stroked or otherwise comforted soothes these same brain regions, stopping the sobs. Without an amygdala, there are no tears of sorrow to soothe. And he talks about Joseph Ledoux, a neuroscientist, and some of his research. Ledoux's research explains how the amygdala can take control over what we do, even as the thinking brain, the neocortex, is still coming to a decision. As we shall see, the workings of the amygdala and its interplay with the neocortex are at the heart of emotional intelligence. And there's a section soon after that called the Emotional Sentinel. A friend tells of having been on vacation in England and eating brunch at a canal-side cafe. 
Taking a stroll afterward along the stone steps down to the canal, he suddenly saw a girl gazing at the water, her face frozen in fear. Before he knew quite why, he had jumped in the water in his coat and tie. Only once he was in the water did he realise that the girl was staring in shock at a toddler who had fallen in, whom he was able to rescue. What made him jump in the water before he knew why? The answer very likely was his amygdala. In one of the most telling discoveries about emotions of the last decade, Ledoux's work revealed how the architecture of the brain gives the amygdala a privileged position as an emotional sentinel, able to hijack the brain. His research has shown that sensory signals from eye or ear travel first in the brain to the thalamus and then across a single synapse to the amygdala. A second signal from the thalamus is rooted to the neocortex, the thinking brain. This branching allows the amygdala to begin to respond before the neocortex, which moulds information through several levels of brain circuits before it fully perceives and finally initiates its more finely tailored response. So yeah, this is the section where it does get quite technical. I think it's worth just researching. It wouldn't take you very long. The different parts of the brain and how they interact. Again, that story of the man jumping into the water. Often, you know, we might have that instinct, but then we'd say, hang on, I'm going to look a fool if I jump in the water for no reason. You know, maybe everyone's going to laugh at me. Everyone's going to think I'm strange. There's all kinds of social filters that this rational mind goes through and it can hijack the emotional mind. So myself, I mean, I'm the kind of person who's going to tell you to trust your emotional mind, maybe over your rational mind or, you know, there's obviously they can work in harmony, as he said, or in conjunction with each other. But uh, yeah, very interesting. And in the same chapter, there's a section called Harmonizing Emotion and Thought. The connections between the amygdala and the neocortex are the hub of the battles or cooperative treaties struck between head and heart, thought and feeling. This circuitry explains why emotion is so crucial to effective thought, both in making wise decisions and in simply allowing us to think clearly. Take the power of emotions to disrupt thinking itself. Neuroscientists use the term working memory for the capacity of attention that holds in mind the facts essential for completing a given task or problem whether it be the ideal features one seeks in a house while touring several prospects or the elements of a reasoning problem on a test. The prefrontal cortex is the brain region responsible for working memory, but circuits from the limbic brain to the prefrontal lobes mean that the signals of strong emotion, anxiety, anger and the like can create neural static, sabotaging the ability of the prefrontal lobe to maintain working memory. That is why when we are emotionally upset, we say we just can't think straight and why continual emotional distress can create deficits in a child's intellectual abilities, crippling the capacity to learn. I think there'll be sections later on where we talk about that. There's a thing called flooding, which I'll mention later. You need to take a step back and that's where things like mindfulness can come in because you've got these circuits of the brain, I'm going to try and make this as simple as possible, that interact with each other but one can dominate the other one. And this is where the trouble can come. So your emotions can overwhelm your thinking. So if you take two extremes, you may have people, and I've met them myself, who have seemingly only a rational mind. They don't have any emotions almost. You know, they're, they're emotionally uh, retarded. I don't mean retarded in the, the offensive sense, literally. 
their emotions have been hijacked somehow. And then you get people who are all emotion. Some people might describe them as a, their life as a, a kind of a car crash because it's just all emotions. You know, they don't have that ability to step back and think rationally. So um, thankfully, most of us are in the middle somewhere. And I think, you know, it's not 50-50 split, but I think if you can spend your life juggling these two things and trying to get them to work together, I think it can be very beneficial to your life. I would love to read all of this, but uh, we are going to have to move on. Part two of the book is called The Nature of Emotional Intelligence. Chapter three is called When Smart is Dumb. This section is called Emotional Intelligence and Destiny. I remember the fellow in my own class at Amherst College who had attained five perfect 800 scores on the SAT and other achievement tests he took before entering. Despite his formidable intellectual abilities, he spent most of his time hanging out, staying up late and missing classes by sleeping until noon. It took him almost 10 years to finally get his degree. IQ offers little to explain the different destinies of people with roughly equal promises, schooling and opportunity. When 95 Harvard students from the classes of the 1940s, a time when people with a wider spread of IQ were at Ivy League schools than is presently the case, were followed into middle age, the men with the highest test scores in college were not particularly successful compared to their lowest scoring peers in terms of salary, productivity or status in their field. Nor did they have the greatest life satisfaction, nor the most happiness with friendships, family and romantic relationships. And then he talks about a similar follow-up in middle age, 450 boys, sons of immigrants, two-thirds from families on welfare who grew up in Somerville, Massachusetts, at the time a blighted slum a few blocks from Harvard. A third had IQs below 90, but again IQ had little relationship to how well they had done at work or in the rest of their lives. For instance, 7% of men with IQs under 80 were unemployed for 10 or more years, but so were 7% of men with IQs over 100. To be sure, there was a general link, as there always is, between IQ and socioeconomic level at age 47, but childhood abilities such as being able to handle frustrations, control emotions and get on with other people made the greater difference. Next section is called A Different Kind of Intelligence. To the casual observer, four-year-old Judy might seem like a wallflower among her more gregarious playmates. She hangs back from the action at playtime, staying on the margins of games rather than plunging into the centre. But Judy is actually a keen observer of the social politics of her preschool classroom, perhaps the most sophisticated of her playmates in her insights into the tides of feeling within the others. Her sophistication is not apparent until Judy's teacher gathers the four-year-olds around to play what they call the classroom game. The classroom game, a dollhouse replica of Judy's own preschool classroom, with stick figures who have for heads, small photos of the students and teachers, is a test of social perceptiveness. When Judy's teacher asks her to put each girl and boy in the part of the room they like to play in most, the art corner, the blocks corner and so on, Judy does so with complete accuracy. And when asked to put each boy and girl with the children they like to play with most, Judy shows she can match best friends for the entire class. Judy's accuracy reveals that she has a perfect social map of her class, a level of perceptiveness exceptional for a four-year-old. These are the skills that in later life might allow Judy to blossom into a star in any of the fields where people skills count, from sales and management to diplomacy. So yeah, very inspiring story there. It's a four-year-old. Quite amazing. I want to mention uh, my nephew, Philip. I might send this bit to him because I'm sure he'll like it. He's uh, 17, I think, now. 
I should remember how old my nephews and nieces are. Generally, I do. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely 17. He's going to be 18 this year. Anyway, Philip has something that everyone in the family has recognised. My mother refers to it as seeming like he's been here before somehow. <laughs> From a very early age, he displayed a lot of emotional intelligence. He had incredible impulse control for a young boy. And one thing I remember distinctly, I think he was about eight, eight or nine, I'm going to say, and I took him swimming. And we got to the local swimming pool and they told us, uh, unfortunately, the lanes are not opening until midday. And that was a th- about an hour from there. I think we got there about 11, let's say. And most children you would expect to, I don't know, start bawling, you know, start crying or getting angry. And Philip just said to me very calmly, and I loved this, he said, oh, should we go to the library and read for an hour? He was suggesting it to me. Like It was almost like a, his way of saying, uh, oh, you know, don't worry, uh, you know, Uncle Anthony, <laughs> we can go to the library. And we just sat calmly in the library reading a book together. It was amazing. And then we went swimming and had a great time. And uh, his father's theory, which I think holds true, could be that just, you know, Philip just came out of the womb special. But his his father pointed to the fact that Philip uh, has a very, very severe nut allergy. And he had an episode, in fact, when he was a baby. And when I say nut allergy, I'm not talking about even eating a whole peanut. If he eats a certain amount of any peanuts or if there's any uh, residue, you know, if the factory where a different product was made, you know, the old thing, warning, may contain nuts. If he has any exposure to that, his life is in danger. And I think that has had a, a strangely beneficial effect in that from the age of whatever it is, four or five, he's had to be very vigilant about what he eats. And that's not normal for a four or five-year-old child. You know, generally they just pick something up, put it in their mouth. Sometimes it's not even food, is it? You know, kids just pick up a small plastic toy and put it in their mouth sometimes. Moving on, same section. They talk about Project Spectrum, a curriculum that intentionally cultivates a variety of kinds of intelligence. And it says the guiding visionary behind Project Spectrum is Howard Gardner, a psychologist at the Harvard School of Education. The time has come, Gardner told me, to broaden our notion of the spectrum of talents. The single most important contribution education can make to a child's development is to help him toward a field where his talents best suit him, where he will be satisfied and competent. We've completely lost sight of that. Instead, we subject everyone to an education where, if you succeed, you will be best suited to be a college professor. And we evaluate everyone along the way according to whether they meet that narrow standard of success. We should spend less time ranking children and more time helping them to identify their natural competencies and gifts and cultivate those. There are hundreds and hundreds of ways to succeed and many, many different abilities that will help you get there. There's a famous educator from England. He just recently died, actually, from Liverpool called Ken Robinson who became Sir Ken Robinson. And TED Talks, uh, another thing that I use in my English classes, I don't always agree. I think TED is quite rooted in the mainstream. And I think the the more radical ideas tend to be found in uh, TEDx, which is an independent arm of the TED organisation. Anyway, Ken Robinson has a couple of great TED Talks. A very famous one, the most famous, and apparently the TED Talk that's had the most views of all. Do Schools Kill Creativity? There's another one I've seen called How to Escape Education's Death Valley. I will put links to those in the show notes, 100%. The reason I mention that, not just because uh, 
but those are great uh, TED Talks anyway. But he said, yes, the same thing. The education system is best designed for someone to become a college professor or university professor, as we say in England. Absolutely right, because um, what I'm going to get onto now, I'm going to take a little break from the book to talk about Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences. Very, very important. Again, we'll put a link in the show notes. Some discussion of how many of these intelligences. Gardner originally proposed eight, but then he added a ninth one, possible one called existentialist intelligence. But I'm going to deal with the eight. There's one that I find quite questionable, which I'll get to. Let's go through them very briefly. Number one, visual spatial intelligence. People like this read and write for enjoyment, are good at putting puzzles together, interpret pictures, graphs and charts well. Potential careers, architect, artist, engineer. I used to have a girlfriend who was an interior designer and I was sharing a room in a house and she designed the room for me in about five minutes and just made it look uh, so much better than it already was. People who read maps as well. The example I always give is uh, footballers. Footballers are generally thought to be not particularly intelligent. Again, what is intelligence? Not academic, I'd rather call that. But they often have a great vision you know, there was a footballer called Paul Gascoigne, who everyone used to joke about was not uh, the sharpest tool in the in the tool set. But he was visionary on the field because he, he would play, he used to play in centre midfield, which is known to be the most creative role in the team. And he'd be right in the middle of the field and he'd have this great ability to sense who was around him. So he had great visual spatial intelligence. Number two is linguistic verbal intelligence. People who are able to use words well, both when writing and speaking. These individuals are typically very good at writing stories, memorising information and reading. I would say also giving speeches, you know, giving TED Talks. It's a thing called the gift of the gab. So strengths, words, language and writing. Potential careers, writer, journalist, lawyer, teacher. Number three, logical mathematical intelligence. Good at reasoning, recognising patterns and logically analysing problems. They're very good at mathematical operations as well. Problem-solving skills, potential careers, scientist, mathematician, computer programmer, engineer, accountant, astronaut perhaps. Number four, bodily kinesthetic intelligence. Strengths, physical movement, motor control. Have you ever seen a dancer, someone who moves with incredible grace, either a professional dancer or someone on a, even on a dance floor in a nightclub? John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever, for example. Yeah, good at dancing and sports. Enjoy creating things with their hands. Have excellent physical coordination. Dancer, builder, sculptor, actor. Musical intelligence. This is a strange one for me because I'm a musician myself. But as with the story I was telling earlier about the guy who played the piano, you would probably say he has strong musical intelligence. But if you don't have an ability to improvise and to feel the music, and if you're just very, very good at learning, you know, let's say you learned Beethoven's Ninth, which runs for apparently 70 minutes if you do the full version, you could memorise that, and then that's that's a different type of intelligence which is to do with memorising. Anyway, people with musical intelligence enjoy singing and playing musical instruments, recognise musical patterns and tones easily, remember songs and melodies, have a rich understanding of musical structure rhythm and notes. Subject close to my heart, the Beatles, if you take Paul McCartney, if you give him the actual music to yesterday, he wouldn't recognise it as yesterday. 
but he knows the chords and he's learned many, many musical tricks and he's developed or had originally a great musical instinct. Career choices, musician, composer, singer, music teacher, conductor. Now, perhaps the two that relate most closely to emotional intelligence, interpersonal intelligence, people who are good at understanding and interacting with other people, skilled at assessing the emotions, motivations, desires and intentions of those around them. Very interesting there, intentions. This kind of person would be very good at negotiating uh, office politics, for example. They communicate well verbally, skilled at non-verbal communication. So that's the body language I was talking about earlier. See situations from different perspectives, create positive relationships with others, resolve conflicts in group settings. Potential careers, psychologist, philosopher, counsellor, salesperson, politician, and life coach, perhaps. Now, interestingly, my brief for Life of Life Only is to look at inner and outer truth. But the problem is that... In life, the truth will often get lost. Or perhaps a different truth will be that you have to negotiate situations. As I said, you know, in an office, for example, and you have to play a certain game. So as much as you like truth and being natural and being true to yourself and all that good stuff, which I totally agree with, you also have to learn to play the game. That's what emotional intelligence is. So it could be that to negotiate this, you have to be fake at certain times. Now, I think it's exhausting, and I don't think it's good for your soul to be fake all the time. Absolutely not. But it's worth remembering that, that as much as it's great to be natural and truthful, you have to also be canny at certain times. The one that I think complements number six is number seven, intrapersonal intelligence. Good at being aware of your own emotional states, feelings and motivations. Tend to enjoy self-reflection and analysis, including daydreaming, exploring relationships with others, and assessing their personal strengths. They analyse their strengths and weaknesses well, enjoy analysing theories and ideas, have excellent self-awareness, understand the basis for his or her own motivations and feelings. Potential careers, philosopher, writer, theorist, scientist. Interesting, that would be a certain type of science. I'd say that would be much more to do with social sciences rather than natural sciences. So yes, you know, know thyself is a very, very famous quote and also the name of one of these chapters. And a lot of the battle to increase your intrapersonal intelligence is to do with the ego. Now again, I've got so much to read here and I'm already miles behind my loose schedule that I started with. But um, there's all kinds of great videos and there's books and texts and essays about the ego. It really is fundamental. You've got to cultivate a relationship with your ego, recognise it, recognise if it's particularly large or particularly fragile. And uh, there's a, a great deal of self-acknowledgement, acknowledgement of your darker sides, of your weaknesses, that is involved with intrapersonal intelligence. Now, the final one, and I think the one that is the shakiest, really, is naturalistic intelligence. And, in fact, this has been met with more resistance than all the other ones. Individuals are high in this type of intelligence, are more in tune with nature and more interested in nurturing, exploring the environment and learning about other species. These individuals are said to be highly aware of even subtle changes to their environments. Now presumably he's talking about the physical environment there, because otherwise you could be talking about um, the fact that, again, if you take an office or if you take a, a group, a music group, a band... It's very interesting if you have a change of personnel in a band, for example, one person can come in and completely change the dynamic. 
So I would say that's to do with interpersonal. So presumably he's talking about a different type of environment there. People with this intelligence are interested in subjects such as botany, biology and zoology. They enjoy camping, gardening, hiking and exploring the outdoors. Now I don't dismiss this one entirely because I think people who, uh, you know, dog trainers for example, people who work with horses, they may be very much in tune with the animals in the same way that other people are very in tune with other people, with humans. Career choices, biologist, conservationist, gardener, farmer. I think there's something there and... Um, I think I may have said on other episodes, I certainly say to people that cats are of particular fascination to me. And I think um, there have been times when I've felt that myself and a particular cat are in tune with each other. I'm just not sure if I'd call it an intelligence. But uh, anyway, again, I encourage you to read more about the theory of multiple intelligences. Very interesting. If we go back to education, notice that really the ability to do very well on a test doesn't really fit. You could almost call it academic intelligence. When I was at school, people would always say, they would always label the most intelligent person in the class as the one who got the highest marks. I remember that distinctly, wasn't it? It was absolutely a given. It wasn't even contested. But I did mention someone called uh, Anthony Harris, I can't remember which episode it was, but I was talking about this story that he'd written and the idea that we all thought he was some kind of genius. That came a bit later. That was probably when we were uh, I don't know, 16, 17. But certainly in the first years of secondary school, high school, as they say in America, there's another boy. I'm not going to name him because I don't want to put him down, but he was a person who, who was very, very, very diligent and he was top in nearly every subject. But when you talk to him, he didn't really have anything particularly insightful or creative or interesting opinions about things he was just a very very good student and um, I'm sure he's been very very successful and good luck to him I don't want to knock him for that but it's interesting to see him and Anthony Harris and this contrast of these two characters anyway that's emotional intelligence so something for you to research so I am miles behind but let's press on Gardner's conclusion was that the Stanford Binet intelligence scale which I think is the IQ test did not predict successful performance across or on a consistent subset of spectrum activities on the other hand the spectrum this is the one that he was talking about that measures emotional intelligence the scores on this test give parents and teachers clear guidance about the realms that these children will take a spontaneous interest in and where they will do well enough to develop the passions that could one day lead beyond proficiency to mastery and there's just a little bit about interpersonal intrapersonal intelligence which i was talking about which like i say i think are fundamental to emotional intelligence interpersonal intelligence is the ability to understand other people what motivates them how they work how to work cooperatively with them successful salespeople, politicians teachers clinicians and religious leaders are all likely to be individuals with high degrees of interpersonal intelligence intrapersonal intelligence is a correlative ability turned inward it is the capacity to form an accurate, veridical model of oneself and to be able to use that model to operate effectively in life. In another rendering, Gardner noted that the core of interpersonal intelligence includes the capacities to discern and respond appropriately to the moods, temperaments, motivations and desires of other people. In intrapersonal intelligence, the key to self-knowledge included access to one's own feelings and the ability to discriminate among them 
and draw upon them to guide behavior. You know, you can develop other intelligences which are perhaps will give you more, what can I say? I'm going to say practical skills, although these are really practical as well. But what I'm saying is, that, you know, if your goal in life is to become a rocket scientist, then, you know, the logical mathematical intelligence will give you, let's say, specific skills which would be part of a job description, let's call it. But this stuff is more subtle. This is all the stuff that goes with the core skills of a job. This is all the other stuff which will, will help you. You know, there are certain professions, let's say, where, you know, if, if you just want to be a, a bookkeeper or an accountant to keep out of everyone's way, you know, and do a job where you just get left alone, then you may not need these intelligences as much. But I would say in the majority of jobs, you're going to be with people and you're going to be tested yourself as well. So both the interpersonal and intrapersonal are massively important. Now, at the end of this particular chapter, there's some direct uh, comparisons between IQ and EQ. I think I'm going to call it EQ from now on rather than emotional intelligence. So keep that in mind. He talks about the pure types. This is very interesting. IQ and EQ are not opposing competencies, but rather separate ones. We all mix intellect and emotional acuity. People with a high IQ but low EQ, or vice versa, are, despite the stereotypes, relatively rare. Indeed, there is a slight correlation between IQ and some aspects of EQ, though small enough to make clear these are largely independent entities. Unlike the familiar test for IQ, there is as yet no single paper and pencil test that yields an emotional intelligence score, and there may never be one. Although there is ample research on each of its components, some of them, such as empathy, are best tested by sampling a person's actual ability at the task, for example by having them read a person's feelings from a video of their facial expressions. Still, using a measure for what he calls ego resilience, which is quite similar to emotional intelligence, Jack Block, a psychologist at the University of California at Berkeley, has made a comparison of two theoretical pure types. The high IQ pure type is almost a caricature of the intellectual, adept in the realm of mind, but inept in the personal world. The profiles differ slightly for men and women. The high IQ male is typified, no surprise, by a wide range of intellectual interests and abilities. He is ambitious and productive, predictable and dogged, and untroubled by concerns about himself. He also tends to be critical and condescending, fastidious and inhibited, uneasy with sexuality and sensual experience, unexpressive and detached, and emotionally bland and cold. By contrast, men who are high in emotional intelligence are socially poised, outgoing and cheerful, not prone to fearfulness or worried rumination. They have a notable capacity for commitment to people or causes, for taking responsibility and for having an ethical outlook. They are sympathetic and caring in their relationships. Their emotional life is rich but appropriate. They are comfortable with themselves, others and the social universe they live in. Looking at women now, purely high IQ women have the expected intellectual confidence, are fluent in expressing their thoughts, value intellectual matters and have a wide range of intellectual and aesthetic interests. They also tend to be introspective, prone to anxiety, rumination and guilt and hesitate to express their anger openly though they do so indirectly. Emotionally intelligent women, by contrast, tend to be assertive and express their feelings directly and to feel positive about themselves. Life holds meaning for them. Like the men, they are outgoing and gregarious and express their feelings appropriately, rather than, say, in outbursts they later regret. They adapt well to stress. 
Their social poise lets them easily reach out to new people. They are comfortable enough with themselves to be playful, spontaneous and open to sensual experience. Unlike the women purely high in IQ, they rarely feel anxious or guilty or sink into rumination. These portraits, of course, are extremes. All of us mix IQ and EQ in varying degrees, but they offer an instructive look at what each of these dimensions adds separately to a person's qualities. To the degree a person has both cognitive and emotional intelligence, these pictures merge. Still, of the two, emotional intelligence adds far more of the qualities that make us more fully human. I was talking a bit about this earlier, but for the male side, if you want two pretty good representations in Hollywood films, and uh, say what you like about Hollywood, and I've got plenty of criticisms of it, they do portray some things very well and in an entertaining way. So I was thinking of the films A Beautiful Mind, uh, which is about John Nash, portrayed by Russell Crowe, and then a film that I recently reviewed with my wonderful niece, Olivia, called The Social Network. That was on my podcast, Film Gold, plug, plug. And that was the Mark Zuckerberg character. Now, the character, as portrayed brilliantly by Jesse Eisenberg, wasn't exactly true to life. It was a, an exaggeration of the truth, let's say. But if you want an idea of these sort of high IQ types who are very awkward with women and also awkward with other people, then those are, I think, are fairly good representations. So the next chapter, chapter four, is called Know Thyself. And a quick story here, a folk tale. A belligerent samurai, an old Japanese tale goes, once challenged a Zen master to explain the concept of heaven and hell. But the monk replied with scorn, You're nothing but a lout. I can't waste my time with the likes of you. His very honour attacked, the samurai flew into a rage, and pulling his sword from his scabbard, yelled, I could kill you for your impertinence. That, the monk calmly replied, is hell. Startled at seeing the truth in what the master pointed out about the fury that had him in its grip, the samurai calmed down, sheathed his sword, and bowed, thanking the monk for the insight. And that, said the monk, is heaven. The sudden awakening of the samurai to his own agitated state illustrates the crucial difference between being caught up in a feeling and becoming aware that you are being swept away by it. Socrates' injunction, Know Thyself, speaks to this keystone of emotional intelligence, awareness of one's own feelings as they occur. It might seem at first glance that our feelings are obvious. More thoughtful reflection reminds us of times we have been all too oblivious to what we really felt about something, or awoke to those feelings late in the game. Psychologists use the rather ponderous term metacognition to refer to an awareness of thought process and metamood to mean awareness of one's own emotions. I prefer the term self-awareness in the sense of an ongoing attention to one's internal states. In this self-reflexive awareness, mind observes and investigates experience itself, including the emotions. And then they talk about a study by John Mayer, not the guitarist, a University of New Hampshire psychologist. He talks about self-awareness. Mayer finds that people tend to fall into distinctive styles for attending to and dealing with their emotions. And there's three here. The first one is self-aware. Aware of their moods as they're having them, these people understandably have some sophistication about their emotional lives. Their clarity about emotions may undergird other personality traits. They are autonomous and sure of their own boundaries, are in good psychological health and tend to have a positive outlook on life. When they get into a bad mood, they don't ruminate and obsess about it and are able to get out of it sooner. In short, their mindfulness helps them manage their emotions. And I refer you back to the 
episodes on meditation, episodes four and five of the podcast. The second one is engulfed. These are people who often feel swamped by their emotions and helpless to escape them, as though their moods have taken charge. They are mercurial and not very aware of their feelings, so that they are lost in them rather than having some perspective. As a result, they do little to try to escape bad moods, feeling that they have no control over their emotional life. They often feel overwhelmed and emotionally out of control. The third one is accepting. While these people are often clear about what they are feeling, they also tend to be accepting of their moods, and so don't try to change them. There seem to be two branches of the accepting type. Those who are usually in good moods and so have little motivation to change them, and people who, despite their clarity about their moods, are susceptible to bad ones but accept them with a laissez-faire attitude, doing nothing to change them despite their distress, a pattern found among, say, depressed people who are resigned to their despair. And this brings to mind what I was saying earlier about um, how it is nice to be natural and to be truthful, but again, I've known people who would just say, well, this is my mood. I've woken up in a bad mood. I need to be, quote-unquote, true to myself. And essentially, they just submit to that. Whereas I've talked on previous episodes about how you can easily cheat your moods. You know, you can't cheat a long-term depression. But one of the things that, again, I've talked about is the idea that a lot of what we call depression is just a depressive mood. But you can cheat your moods. You know, watch a comedy program. Watch, uh, I don't know, the Marx Brothers, Laurel and Hardy, Alan Partridge, Faulty Towers. Watch that for 10 minutes and see how quickly you can snap out of your moods. And the point I made when I previously talked about this is that it seems like cheating, but fine. You know, what it means is that the mood that you're in at that time perhaps isn't really depression. It's just a depressed state. At the same time, you know, if you have a chronic depression, you need to take steps to that. You can't just accept it. So um, it's interesting. You might want to think about which of those three camps that you might be in. Perhaps you're in a combination of the three. But reaction to stress and moods can tell you a lot about somebody and yourself. Now we have an interesting story, a section called The Man Without Feelings. Gary infuriated his fiancée Ellen because even though he was intelligent, thoughtful and successful surgeon, Gary was emotionally flat, completely unresponsive to any and all shows of feeling. While Gary could speak brilliantly of science and art, when it came to his feelings, even for Ellen, he fell silent. Try as she might to elicit some passion from him, Gary was impassive, oblivious. I don't naturally express my feelings, Gary told the therapist he saw at Ellen's insistence. When it came to emotional life, he added, I don't know what to talk about. I have no strong feelings, either positive or negative. And it talks about how other people in his life were very frustrated by this in Gary. There is a name that's been given to this, Alexithemia, from the Greek A for lack, Lexis for word, and Themis for emotion. Such people lack words for their feelings. Indeed, they seem to lack feelings altogether, although this may actually be because of their inability to express emotion rather than an absence of emotion altogether. What's more, they have trouble discriminating among emotions as well as between emotion and bodily sensation, so that they may tell of having butterflies in the stomach, palpitations, sweating and dizziness, but they would not know they are feeling anxious. So again, what's been called recently is owning your feelings and owning your actions as well. So again, it all comes down to the ability to 
at least try to be aware of your feelings and to identify and to own them. Going back to um, Alexi Themix, it's not that they never feel, but they are unable to know and especially unable to put into words precisely what their feelings are. They are utterly lacking in the fundamental skill of emotional intelligence, namely self-awareness, knowing what we are feeling as emotions royal within us. And here we get back to the idea of the brain. While no one can yet say for sure what causes alexithemia, Dr. Peter Sifnius, who coined the term, proposes a disconnection between the limbic system and the neocortex, particularly its verbal centres, which fits well with what we are learning about the emotional brain. Patients with severe seizures who had that connection surgically severed to relieve their symptoms become emotionally flat, like people with alexithemia, unable to put their feelings into words and suddenly devoid of fantasy life. In short, though the circuits of the emotional brain may react with feelings, the neocortex is not able to sort out these feelings and add the nuance of language to them. As Henry Roth observed in his novel Call It Sleep about this power of language, if you could put words to what you felt, it was yours. The corollary, of course, is the alexithemic's dilemma. Having no words for feelings means not making the feelings your own. Self-awareness is fundamental to psychological insight. This is the faculty that much of psychotherapy means to strengthen. Indeed, Howard Gardner's model for intrapsychic intelligence is Sigmund Freud, the great mapper of the psyche's secret dynamics. As Freud made clear, much of emotional life is unconscious. Feelings that stir within us do not always cross the threshold into awareness. Empirical verification of this psychological axiom comes, for instance, from experiments on unconscious emotions, such as the remarkable finding that people form definite likings for things they do not even realise they have seen before. Any emotion can be, and often is, unconscious. Now, I'm not a huge Freudian. I think there's definitely something in what he said. But one of the themes of the book is that if we take later, they talk about crime and uh, aberrant behaviour, as it's called. A lot of the instincts are unconscious and they are to do with having a different type of brain and if you think about psychopathy there was a good program actually on channel four in england which i think you can find online again i'll try and find a link to that put it in the show notes these people who commit horrendous crimes a lot of it's to do with their environment which again we'll get onto later but also a difference in the brain so um it comes to a point where if you think of it really deeply can you blame this person because something is happening in their brain that they're not even aware of. I don't have an answer to that exactly, um, but I think we will discuss it later when we start talking about crime. But uh, yeah, plenty to think about. The next chapter is called Passions Slaves. This is to do with people who are chronic uh, warriors, with an O, that is, people who worry a lot. What a lot of people who try to deal with anxiety and worry find difficult is that there are positives to it. And one of the things that's said in the book here talks about a partial payoff from worrying that's highly reinforcing to the habit. There is, it seems, something positive in worries. Worries are ways to deal with potential threats, with dangers that may come one's way. The work of worrying, when it succeeds, is to rehearse what those dangers are and to reflect on ways to deal with them. But worry doesn't work all that well. New solutions and fresh ways of seeing a problem do not typically come from worrying, especially chronic worry. Instead of coming up with solutions to these potential problems, worriers typically simply ruminate on the danger itself. 
immersing themselves in a low-key way in the dread associated with it while staying in the same rut of thought. Chronic warriors worry about a wide range of things, most of which have almost no chance of happening. They read dangers into life's journey that others never notice. Yet chronic warriors believe that worrying helps them and that their worries are self-perpetuating, an endless loop of angst-ridden thought. Why should worry become what seems to amount to a mental addiction? It seems that the worry habit is reinforcing in the same sense that superstitions are. Since people worry about many things that have a very low probability of actually occurring, such as a loved one dying in a plane crash or going bankrupt, there is to the primitive limbic brain at least something magical about it, like an amulet that wards off some anticipated evil. The worry psychologically gets the credit for preventing the danger it obsesses about. And I'm sure we all know people who, the more they worry about things, the more these things do tend to happen. It's almost as if they're attracting it. So continuing with that, chronic worries are self-defeating. They take the form of stereotyped rigid ideas, not creative breakthroughs that actually move towards solving the problem. This rigidity shows up not just in the manifest content of worried thought, which simply repeats more or less the same ideas over and over, but at a neurological level there seems to be a cortical rigidity, a deficit in the emotional brain's ability to respond flexibly to changing circumstance. In short, chronic worry works in some ways, but not in other, more consequential ones. It eases some anxiety, but never solves the problem. If we take our desert island example, as we were saying earlier, you should worry if you're stranded on a desert island, but if you just spend all day ruminating, worrying, you know, what's going to happen you have to realise that it's not serving any practical purpose. It's using a lot of your energy in the form of nervous energy, which again, you know, perhaps worrying and anxiety creates adrenaline. That's why it maybe becomes addictive, but it's not actually helping you because like you say, it's just a a rigid idea. It's it's no creativity really involved in worrying. Or if there is, then I wouldn't call it worrying. I'd call it trying to solve a problem. So if you are a person who's worried or anxious but perhaps not to a really chronic or high level, but just someone who has a tendency towards that in your everyday life, then think to yourself, is it actually serving me? Or is it just taking away my energy without offering any practical or creative solution to my apparent dilemma? Now we get on to melancholy and depression. One of the main determinants of whether a depressed mood will persist or lift is the degree to which people ruminate. Worrying about what's depressing us makes the depression all the more intense and prolonged. In depression, worry takes several forms, all focusing on one aspect of the depression itself. How tired we feel, how little energy or motivation we have, for instance, or how little work we're getting done. Typically, none of this reflection is accompanied by any concrete course of action that might alleviate the problem. So that's really a reiteration of what we were saying just before. Depressed people sometimes justify this kind of rumination by saying they are trying to understand themselves better. In fact, they are priming the feelings of sadness without taking any steps that might actually lift their mood. So yeah, again, you're perpetuating it. You know, if you lie in bed all day thinking about your depression, in a sense, you're just feeding it, you're indulging yourself. Again, as with anxiety, if you have a long-term chronic depression therapy and uh, other practical steps... I'm not a great proponent of medication, but I do understand that in certain cases it, it can have magical effects. I think there's some talk of that later in the book, so we'll, we'll get to it then. So the idea of this idea of rumination is essentially creating conditions that are more depressing. 
you know, a darkened room, no social contact is, uh, like I say, feeding the depression. So in terms of uh, solutions to this, so cognitive therapy aimed at changing these thought patterns has been found in some studies to be on a par with medication for treating mild clinical depression and superior to medication in preventing the return of mild depression. Two strategies are particularly effective in the battle. One is to learn to challenge the thoughts at the centre of rumination, to question the validity and think of more positive alternatives. The other is to purposely schedule pleasant, distracting events. So yes, CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. I've got so much to cover here, I'm not going to talk about that now, but again, something to definitely research. A member of my family's had that, in fact, and they said it was very beneficial. So on distraction, one reason distraction works is that depressing thoughts are automatic, intruding on one's state of mind, unbidden. Even when depressed people try to suppress their depressing thoughts, they often cannot come up with better alternatives. Once a depressive tide of thought has started, it has a powerful magnetic effect on the train of association. The tendency for depression to perpetuate itself shades even the kinds of distractions people choose. When depressed people are given a list of upbeat or ponderous ways to get their minds off something sad, they picked more of the melancholy activities. Richard Wensleff, the University of Texas psychologist who did these studies, concludes that people who are already depressed need to make a special effort to get their attention on something that is completely upbeat, being careful not to inadvertently choose something such as a tearjerker movie or a tragic novel that will drag their mood down again. And I've had some experience of that myself. You know, I've had, I would say, depressive moods rather than depression. And I've sort of piled it on, you know. I've been turned on, you might say, by um, watching a, a terribly tragic film, you know, like a war film or something like that. I don't tend to the tear-jerking option there, but, you know, tragedy. My justification to myself was that so much of life is to do with tragedy. Someone once said, life is a tragic comedy i'd probably go along with that i was going to give life a, a genre and i i often used to get confused between stimulation in terms of just stimulating my senses and actually trying to lift my mood so my mood was very much enhanced by depressing and tragic things but it obviously wasn't helping the mood they talk about various things such as crying but they say about crying, while it can sometimes break a spell of sadness, it can also leave the person still obsessing about the reasons for despair. The idea of a, quote, good cry is misleading. Crying that reinforces rumination only prolongs a misery. Distractions break the chain of sadness-maintaining thinking. To shake garden-variety sadness, which is this kind of low-level sadness I was talking about, many people reported turning to distractions such as reading, TV and movies, video games and puzzles, sleeping and daydreams, such as planning a fantasy vacation. Some of the most effective distractions are ones that will shift your mood. An exciting sporting event, a funny movie, an uplifting book. A note of caution. Some distractors in themselves can perpetuate depression. Studies of heavy TV watchers have found that after watching TV, they're generally more depressed than before they started. Just to make the point that when I stopped watching TV, uh, my life did change for the better i still think i still watch things on screens but it's this idea of just having the tv on all day and planting yourself in front of it and just absorbing whatever's there and then i think in a way then you are being literally programmed that's why they're called tv programs apparently aerobic exercise is one of the most effective ways for lifting mild depression as well as other bad moods the caveat being that mood lifting benefits of exercise work best for the lazy 
those who usually do not work out very much. For those with a daily exercise routine, whatever mood-changing benefits it offers were probably strongest when they first took up the exercise habit. In fact, for habitual exercises, there is a reverse effect on mood. They start to feel bad on those days when they skip their workout. Exercise seems to work well because it changes the physiological state the mood evokes. Depression is a low arousal state and aerobics pitches the body into high arousal. By the same token, relaxation techniques, which put the body into a low arousal state, work well for anxiety, a high arousal state, but not so well for depression. Each of these approaches seems to work to break the cycle of depression or anxiety because it pitches the brain into a level of activity incompatible with the emotional state that has had it in its grip. So to summarise that last bit, depression is low arousal, so you should exercise, so you're in high arousal. If you're in high arousal, so very anxious, very manic, then uh, relaxation techniques will help. Again, meditation, can't recommend it enough. Episodes four and five. (laughs) A more constructive approach to mood lifting is engineering a small triumph or easy success, tackling some long-delayed chore around the house or getting some other duty they've been wanting to clear up. By the same token, lifts to self-image also were cheering, even if only in the form of getting dressed up. One of the most potent and outside therapy little used antidotes to depression is seeing things differently or cognitive reframing. It is natural to bemoan the end of a relationship and to wallow in self-pitying thoughts, but it's sure to thicken the sense of despair. However, stepping back and thinking about the ways the relationship wasn't so great and ways you and your partner were mismatched, in other words, seeing the loss differently in a more positive light is an antidote to the sadness. By the same token, cancer patients, no matter how serious their condition, were in better moods if they were able to bring to mind another patient who was in even worse shape. Quote, I'm not so bad off, at least I can walk. Those who compared themselves to healthy people were the most depressed. Such downward comparisons are surprisingly cheering. Suddenly what had seemed quite dispiriting doesn't look all that bad. It's become so much of a cliche, but um, I went to India a couple of years ago. And if, for example, you're, uh, you grew up in the West particularly if you're middle class and you grew up in a fairly stable household, you've already, quote, won the lottery of life. The majority of people don't live in that situation at all. As tragic as it is, the majority of people in this world are fairly poor or very poor and live in a state of uh, bare subsistence. Another effective depression lifter is helping others in need. Since depression feeds on ruminations and preoccupations with the self, helping others lifts us out of these preoccupations as we empathise with people in pain of their own. Throwing oneself into volunteer work, such as coaching or feeding the homeless, was found to be one of the most powerful mood changes, but also one of the rarest. Finally, at least some people are able to find relief from their melancholy in turning to a transcendent power. Praying, if you're very religious, works for all moods, especially depression. And... uh, One more time, meditation as well, or mindfulness.